This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 11th of October 2016. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host Dave. Hi Dave. Hello Jon. How are you doing? I am doing very well. It's a sunny Friday afternoon as we record this, even though you'll be hearing it on a Tuesday. I know. Breaking that uh, fourth wall or third wall or whichever wall it is. Don't tell them all our secrets, Dave. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) But it is Friday and I'm happy to be podcasting again. Always. The more we do this, the easier it gets, I guess. Well, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, let's... All the the, uh, listeners are probably thinking, is David the program now? So, Dave, (laughs) what's the next section? So, the next section, it probably is our news for the week. Probably. And let's start off with a an article from Silicon Valley Data Science. I think we've had one of their articles as our as uh, as one of my articles before, but this one I think it's, it's pretty good. It's to do with uh, beyond privacy and security in a connected world. So it's talking about um, you know how sort of rights of privacy applies in the big data space. Everything from you know intelligent traffic management for prioritizing ambulance routing, or using satellite imagery to and ground sensors to deal with you know, crop irrigation decisions, but it, it sort of goes through the overall picture of uh, you know government legislation and how that should sort of play into things, uh, but also making sure that you're applying a consistent and appropriate level of protection against the data that you are collecting. And of course, that's going to vary wildly depending on what sort of organization you are. But it breaks it down into sort of three major sort of rights, if you like. So privacy, which is um, the fundamental rights of anonymity, freedom from intrusion or interference. Um, security, uh, the establishment of protected boundaries for access to assets, which we'll be talking more about later. Um, and data rights, the, uh, which they define as the definition and application of policies that govern what contextual actions and usages are allowable by known users on known resources. So that's the sort of role-based access control that, again, mm-hmm. we'll be talking, talking about later. So they then go in and there's a nice little diagram that shows, you know, how policies define the rights and the rights um, govern sort of the users and the resources and the actions that users can perform on resources. And then you've got uh, a little bit around policy and government policy and the fact that it is an ever-changing space. And once you start collecting data on people, you need to be very careful that you're following whatever your local policy is. Um, a little bit about um, the fact that, you know, really you, what you're dealing with here is trust and they say wrangling risk, but I would say managing risk. Um, you know, there are there are risks to you know data breaches, and um, they talk about uh, a HIPAA violation is something that can cost you up to fifty thousand US dollars per record, up to one point five million total. So, you know, there is, are some of these. Are is that very in fines risk. or in loss? Yeah. So, okay. No, in fines. If, if you violate the um, HIPAA legislation. That's fifty thousand US dollars per record that violates that. So, yeah, it's 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 big business. You know, being compliant is. I mean, if you talk about the you know, payment card industry, they will just remove your ability to process cards. You know, that, and then that's your business gone. So, 
Um, so anyway, it goes through a lot of different points. It talks about, um, you know, different areas to think about, different things that are important. And in fact, it does mention many of the projects that we'll be talking about later, like Apache Sentry, Apache Ranger, and Apache Knox. Um, so it's it's just a nice a nice intro to things, but actually getting you to think about it not just from a pure tech, but actually think about what you're protecting and why you're protecting it. So yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, sounds good because there's been a bit of a lack of, uh, I guess, initiative from uh, common business, and that's why a lot of legislation is being put in place every every day. It would seem to make uh, it harder and harder to have some data in your data stores in the end, because there's uh, the right to be forgotten. You have to be able to detect and tell the world that you've been hacked if that happens. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, pressure on to get all of this, uh, yeah, security and governance. Uh, well, uh, well established in your environment. Yeah, and you not just got that, but also you've got. If you think about the the cybersecurity layer as well, let's say you are compromised in some way, shape, or form. Um, you need to be able to actually play back as mu- in as much detail as possible what that compromise was. Yeah, for you forensics. Know, yeah, exactly. If if uh, say a, a customer table was um, was accessed, well. How much did they actually access? Did they just access, you know, a hundred lines of it, or did they access the whole thing? I mean, that 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 could be a difference in millions. Where if you have to notify every single person that was, um, you know, if that's every single one of your customers or ten customers, and if yeah. you can't, if you if you can't actually sort of uh, say how many were compromised, then you have to tell everybody. So, you know, yeah. having having real uh, logging behind this is important as well. Yeah, being able to have a holistic view of the whole intrusion is uh, very important. Yeah. It's yeah. to limit the visibility and the impact it can have. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just in the Hadoop world, it's not just in the big data world, it's uh, everywhere in uh, IT and uh, above, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, but the tools are getting better. Oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So what about you? What's your first news article for the week? Okay, my first one is from the O'Reilly website. It's mm-hmm. written by Mickey O'Brown. And it's titled, What is Hardcore, Hardcore Data Science in Practice? And actually, I don't really like the title because it's, for me, the, 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 the content is not connected to the title, but that's just me probably. <laughs> and it's actually, um, uh, this uh, Mikio, he's uh, working for Zalando. And most of the European people will know Zalando as a big uh, online e-tailer. I'm not sure in the US if that's a known name. And what he's actually writing about in a very, at a very high level, it's not technical at all, but how the uh, data science part and the developer side in a company need to work together to make a, an, a nice working together program solution, whatever they're building at the point, and how these two parties in a company actually work in a very different way, where the data scientist is more of the exploratory, let's try this, let's try that, throw it away, throw it again, try this, do this, and very much scripting and, uh, I don't know, not really compiling programs with a lot more Python stuff. And the development part, uh, part on the other hand, who needs to put this into production, they need to communicate with these data scientists. And the article kind of talks about how, at Zalando then, they've been trying to integrate these two parts of uh, yeah, the same coin, if you like. And it's a very nice article. Um, just go scrolling through it here. It has some nice graphs on it as well. There's a link to a, a video on scalable machine learning as well, which is somewhat related. Has some big, scary math uh, formulas on there as well. Luckily, <laughs> don't talk about it too much. 
but it's more about just the business approach and how should you do this, uh, like uh, understanding data science versus production. We've actually had a couple of episodes on that already when the guys from ML Leap were, or M Leap, sorry, were on the on the podcast. How do you get that machine learning uh, algorithm in your production flow? So they're not going to go into detail in this article on how to do the actually coding for that, but they do give you nice, uh, think about this, think about that, this is what you should do, this is what we think you shouldn't do. Stuff like that. And it's a very nice article. It's a light read. It's not very short. You need to have some time for it. But uh, it was a nice read. And it's something that uh, comes back again and again and again. I mean, I'm I'm sure talking about it a lot. (laughs) So I kind of liked it and I wanted to put it out there. And uh, the fun thing is, a little detail here. At Zalando, apparently, they no longer have the titles of data scientists anymore. They now are called research engineers. Wow. <laughs> Branding always helps. <laughs> Look at that. It's come full circle, I tell you. Yeah. I I don't know. I the the idea of of this is is kind of curious because you when you talk about um data scientists from a, a consulting perspective, this this I always find kind of curious and um I think we probably need an episode where we actually interview a couple of data scientists and and sort of have this uh, have this explained in more detail. But one of the one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for having at least some level of of domain understanding for to to actually get a good handle on a lot of these problems. But from from what I understand, actually, that's not it's not necessarily the case. And in fact, in some cases, having um, a significant amount of domain knowledge can even potentially hamper some of your thinking. Mm-hmm. Actually, to have someone that doesn't have that baggage of domain knowledge can actually be quite quite uh, useful. And there was a, an example of a solar power station. Um, and this is a real world life, uh, real world example I've I've uh, I've heard about, which is um, they were having this. They had this solar power station in the the US somewhere guessing like Arizona or something like that. And it was tripping out on a, on a fairly regular basis, you know, once a month or so. And when it, whenever it would fail, um, you know, that downtime and, you know, getting it all back up again would cost around about a million dollars. Um, and the, the company that operated it had no idea what was happening, you know, no idea why it was going around, no idea what it was doing. And so they they brought in a data scientist who had no domain knowledge, no understanding of what was what they were looking at. All they had was a a field of um, I don't remember the exact number. It was like hundreds, if not thousands, of different parameters and the times at which things tripped. And the data scientist came back, I don't know, probably about uh, a day or two later, and said, "These, you know, narrowed it down to basically these twelve sensors or parameters or what you know look at these things and the company came back and said no that doesn't make any sense none of those 12 are related to why this would be shutting down um they then came back a week after that and said actually we found it those 12 settings those 12 sensors linked us through or you know directed us through to the fact that we'd actually hooked up a particular valve the wrong way around Mm. and so something had tripped so the whole kind of area of uh, of, of this sort of domain knowledge generally data science generally i think is actually 
it's something we probably need to go into in more depth. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree. I mean, it's it's always true that a third set of eyes with less preconceptions will help a team get to a solution faster, perhaps. But I don't think we want to send out the message that you should find somebody who doesn't know anything about your company, what you're doing, and have him solve your machine learning problems. Because at the end, like we talked about this last episode, I think, having somebody look at results from machine learnings and whatever with intelligence, uh, which kind of implies domain knowledge, right? Yeah. It's still yeah. necessary, right? But it's definitely true that it's always good in programming development and anything you do, really, to just have your intermediate uh, results, give it to somebody who really does know what you're doing and get a fresh, eyes, a fresh, set, fresh set of eyes on it. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But this article doesn't really talk about the domain knowledge, but more about how the different uh, people work differently and how they should actually talk to each other. That's spreading yeah. the, that really dividing the developers and the data scientists and not having to talk to each other, which is something a lot of companies do, is not a good idea because it makes it harder to put your, uh, whatever you developed in machine learning, algorithms or stuff into production. You just make it harder on yourself there. And who'd have thought that, right? Who'd have thought that not enough communication was a bad thing? Ah, yeah, well, brand new news brand new news yeah, it's maybe not new but it's a nice <laughs> article I've never actually seen yeah. an article that puts it down so nicely and also the fact that it's coming from Zalando a pretty big company who actually are, are living this it's not just theory it's yeah. how they put it into practice so um, it's a nice read so show notes will have the links as always and good with stuff. that sorry good stuff yeah with that your turn all right. So the next one, actually, I was looking at this in a bit more depth as uh, as you were running through yours, and it's actually an old new story. <laughs> so a little bit similar to yours, maybe. Um, so this is actually um, the the t- article's title is "The Broken Promise of Open Source Big Data Software and What Might Fix It," and it's dated September twenty seventh. But actually, when you run down through it, the the core of what started this article off is it's a video interview taken during uh, Summit San Jose back in June. And uh, it's um, an interview with a guy named Rakesh Kant, um, who is the head of enterprise data management and analytics for U.S. Bank. And he basically says that um, or his basic premise is that um, there's just just too much choice. There's too much of a morass of various different projects, various different tools, various different technologies, um, and you know they actually then go down into um, some of the stats around this um, with you know Gartner um, predicting that through t- 2018, some 70% of Hadoop deployments won't produce the hoped for higher revenues or cost savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, so basically saying that the there's a, a strong feeling that for those people who are you know, getting into this, it's still a very complex space. It's still, it's not, you know, you can get turnkey solutions. So things like, um, you know, PaaS layer solutions or SaaS layer solutions, but that isn't going to guarantee you, you know, um, an, a return on investment. It's it's how you implement this um, that makes the sense, and you know, making sure you use, uh, you know, you pick a sensible use case and things like that. So it's kind of an interesting article that that goes through a, a variety of different angles, from um, things like a lack of overall big data talent being available in in the marketplace, um, through to sort of actually. 
um, you know, public cloud competition and, you know, you're certainly a, a significant part of that with um, with the way that Microsoft is is pushing very heavily into you know, delivering machine learning as a service within mm-hmm. Azure and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a kind of it's a kind of interesting interesting article that sort of maybe you know, things st- things are still complex and things aren't quite so easy to easy to consume and easy to get started with as perhaps we sometimes think from at least from some people's views. Yeah, I do kind of disagree a bit with the premise that it's the morass, the 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 abundance of alternatives that's causing these uh, projects to fail. Uh, yeah, sure, there is a big uh, a big amount of projects and things and whatever you can look at, but people have it's their own responsibility to get informed on those things and make informed decisions. Having the the the, the, the morass, as they call it, that's flexibility. That's good. I like that. Yes, Welcome to it means the world of complex. open source. Yeah, exactly. That, that's open source, the core of it. And yes, it does mean it's complex and you need to do your homework and get informed or have partners that can help you with that uh, step of it. Yeah. And it's also true that a lot of companies just do this, um, yeah, I would say blind horse style, just run with it and see what happens. And that's never a good idea. But if you do yes. it the way that we try to help our customers having a small use case, a directed use case, simple use case that has a measurable result and just try to do this little bit and then start growing, it's all in the planning, I think. It's more of a project management problem, if you like, than uh, the flexibility of open source. That's at uh, the cause of the failure of a lot of uh, op- uh, big data uh, problems. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's, but I just thought it was, it was, and there's actually a, there's a, a YouTube link to his actual video, so you can you can listen to him sort of get all uppity about the the big data landscape and see if you agree with us uh, once you've once you've watched him. Yeah. Anyway, good article. It's definitely what we're right. talking about. Indeed. So, what's what's your next one? Ooh, my next one. Well, when we do, when I prepare for this section of the podcast, I always uh, do a bit of news searching and trawling and just see what pops up. And this thing caught my eye, and I had to think about my bold predictions from uh, the end of last year. It's a article. It's on the prnewswire.com site, and it's from September nineteenth. I can't really see an author, so I can't mention that. And the title is, and I'm sure you can talk a lot about that, the title is Hortonworks, IBM Collaborate to Offer Open Source Distribution on Power Systems. Now, for people that have been listening to this podcast for a couple of months, or I mean since the beginning, I made a bold prediction last December that IBM would drop its uh, Big Insights uh, Hadoop environment in favor of HDP. Uh, reasoning behind that was that, and that's actually also mentioned in the article, IBM and Hortmers were founding members of the Open Data Initiative. They had this, uh, this, the same layer with the Ambari and Yarn everything. And this really sounds like it's the next step. Now, the article does, just to be sure, it doesn't say that they're dropping Big Insights. It doesn't say it at all. <laughs> But this does feel a bit the way that Pivotal, half a year ago, 18 months ago, something like that, also started with collaborating with HDP, <clears throat> excuse me, and then after a couple of months of uh, some, I don't know, vague comments, decided to move it all over lock, stock and barrel. So, um, Mr. Dave Russell from Hortonworks, <laughs> any comment? <laughs> no comment at all <laughs> whatsoever. Um, so I, I do think it's kind of 
so Horton Works hat completely aside, um, this is now the third company I've worked for that's that's done this whole getting into bed with IBM and going power. So the first one being Red Hat. I was at Red Hat when uh, when they made uh, Rel on Power a thing. Um, I was at Canonical when Ubuntu made uh, Ubuntu on Power a thing. I did that. And, that yeah, and and now now I'm at uh, now I'm at Hortonworks, and something similar seems to be happening here. So maybe it's just following me. Yeah, maybe, you're a maybe fault here. I'm the catalyst here. <laughs> so let's let's talk about let's, let's talk about power a little bit because I don't know I don't I, I don't know what your view is on this, but my view on power and uh, this is my personal view. Before people start uh, writing into Hortonworks complaining about uh, me being off-brand, yeah, don't write to Hortonworks. Uh, write to the Roaring Elephant. Absolutely. Um, is I struggle to see power's relevance in in today's data centers, and I know that there are lots of organizations that have it and love it, but it, it just it's one of those architectures that I think made sense. You know during the the times of unix and by and large is is pretty much like outdated and gone now surely it's a bit dinosaur isn't it 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 really is it at least to me um, they're still relevant because they're still in as you said installed in a lot of places and actually if i remember back to my previous previous job when i was at sursara the supercomputer for the Dutch uh, government at that time was actually based on a power PC from uh, IBM, a power system from IBM. Yeah, it got replaced by a thing, a machine from Bull, which was based on simple uh, Intel x86, uh, well, 46-bit of course, uh, architecture, more of a BWOLF cluster thing. Yeah, but that uh, IBM power system was ranked pretty high up in there. Now, of course, we are talking about mm, five years ago, maybe. And yeah. in this world, things do go fast. So do you think that this is just IBM trying to keep the power systems in the news slash uh, relevant? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, re- realistically, um, if, I was, if I was recommending someone to buy a uh, you know, brand new Hadoop environment today, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be recommending power. And that's... <laughs> Obviously. It's just that's just that's where I come from. That that's that's what I've been doing is replacing power with x86 for the last fifteen years or yeah. more. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's kind of curious. It's kind of interesting. I'm I'm more curious to see how how real this gets. How um, how this starts to impact the rest of of IBM's um, like software culture. Things like data stage have have you know remained relevant for lots of traditional enterprises, but have never really um, you know they've never really engaged with a lot of a lot of the open source technologies. They've still remained that separate silo. So I'm wondering if this is a a softening of that messaging and whether we'll see greater collaboration between IBM and uh, and the open source community as as things move forward. But uh, yeah, interesting times. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's no way that a uh, power system is the ideal situation for Hadoop. Cluster Hadoop is being always based on commodity hardware stuff. But the thing that struck me most about this is not necessarily that we're not going to see a lot of Hadoop on, on, on power systems, but more that IBM is collaborating with Hortonworks to put the Hadoop on the power system while they have their own big insights uh, distribution. If they want to put Hadoop on their own power systems, why not use their own Hadoop distribution? 
That's a good question. Maybe we should get someone from IBM on. <laughs> hey, people from IBM, if you're on the if you're in the listening audience, if you have some information, contact us. We would love to hear from you directly. Absolutely. Anyway, it was a fun uh, article. It's pretty low key. If you search for it, you don't find that many references to it. So it's not that it's being trumpeted a lot, but uh, I don't know. Signs to come. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay, you're next. All right. So I've got uh, I've got two fairly small ones coming up. Um, I'll do one, then I'll do one, and then you do one. Okay. So my first one is um, Apache Spot. So you've heard me, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, you've heard me mention Apache Metron a couple of times. Um, and in the, uh, in the true spirit of NIH syndrome, uh, NIH standing for not invented here, <laughs> um, Cloudera has, uh, has had something for a little while now called the Open Network Insight, the ONI project. Um, and that effort has now been renamed and accepted into the ASF incubator as an incubating project called Apache Spot. So it's a open source cybersecurity solution, sits on top of Hadoop. And um, I'm not really going to go into too much more detail around it. It uses Spark. Um, it's going to be doing some machine learning. Realistically, any more than that uh, there seems to be a little bit of i've had a, a little bit of a dig into it and it seems to be some smoke and mirrors going on so i'm we're gonna no doubt do something specifically on cybersecurity. now we have two competing solutions we've got things we can actually talk about compare and contrast approaches and that sort of thing so i think we might do a session on that uh, maybe later on in the year or early next year who knows but uh, yeah apache spot yeah, a competition is always a good thing. Definitely open source. Yeah, but uh, the Apache uh, initiatives from Cloudera. I mean, Impal is also still incubating, right? So yeah, we'll see how that. Do they mention Storm at all in Spot? No, no, because no, so uh, doing it Spark streaming, then I don't know. Yeah, it all depends yeah. on what their aim is. But okay, interesting. Yeah, new is good. <laughs> yeah, new is always good. Competition is good. It's all good. Me again? I think so. Okay, well, uh, I got an old one now, because even though you said that my first uh, news article is an old one, that was actually from the 22nd of September, but this one is somewhat older. <laughs> it's one I've had in my uh, news bucket for a couple of uh, months and <laughs> by now, but it's always been trumped by other interesting news. But this is something that went live in June, so a couple of months mm-hmm. ago, and uh, I'm going to uh, link from uh, this is ad week but there's more links on this uh, in, on the internet and the title is inside the next Rembrandt uh, how com- how do you get the computer to paint like the old master and this is actually something that won some uh, awards in uh, I'm not sure they weren't Oscars but something like that I'm kind of trying to figure out what kind of awards they won they weren't BAFTAs either because it wasn't in uh, England, but they are lions at the Cannes Lion Festival. That's mm-hmm. it. And actually what they did is they had a machine learning algorithm uh, did look at all the old Rembrandt uh, paintings and then have a computer 3D print a new uh, painting. And in real detail here, they actually uh, analyzed the faces and the clothing and the hats they wore and the kind of paint he used. And the result is actually layered, just like the old guy. Apparently, he layered his paints on top of each other, so we have a 3D effect on the paint, on the new painting itself. 
And mm-hmm. it's a nice article. And there's also a specific website called uh, www.nextrembrand.com, which has nice uh, imagery about the whole thing and explains how they did the uh, uh, machine learning, what they looked at, how they did it. And it's, it just looks nice. And if you look at the picture that uh, the, mach- the computer actually composed, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not an art critic, but if you told me this is a Rembrandt, I would totally believe you. So it's a very nice example of machine learning, a little bit of fun. It was uh, sponsored by a local Dutch bank, and I guess Microsoft also had something to do with it, apparently. There's a logo on the screen. But it, uh, it's a very nice example of machine learning doing something fun. Yeah, otherwise known as brown guy against a brown background. Yeah, with a black coat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't diss the Dutch painters, please. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyway, no, no, that's cool. It's cool, and uh, it, it's uh, interesting that it's not just um, it's not just something where they just rendered an image and, and printed it, but it's actually the the, the nature of three D printing it as yep. well. So you get that that fully textured yep, yep, yep. Uh, experience. Yeah, they actually yeah, cool. printed the brush strokes as if it was real. And of course, there's some right. articles out there that even experts can't tell them apart, but but probably other things you can see from the canvas used and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's, like uh, it's, the fact that Rembrandt never actually painted this. Yeah, but how do you know? Maybe this is all just a hoax, and the machine learning is a hoax, and they actually found an old painting and just told the world this is machine learning. No, you I never tell know. you, man, it's on it's on Wikipedia. It says all the paintings <laughs> he ever he ever painted. <laughs> okay, well that's it for me. You had one last all one. Right. I do have one last one, and for me, this is proof that big data has has truly crossed the chasm. And uh, as as Jon was saying earlier, you know, when when we're doing this, some of this stuff just naturally filters through to us, and sometimes we just do a little bit of hunting around for interesting articles to to kind of bring up. And so I'm bringing up uh, an article in FarmingLife.com. Yes, Ooh. you heard it right, FarmingLife.com. And the uh, the title is SMEs advise to capitalize on big data, uh, and the, uh, just read a little bit. Uh, uh, what's SME bit. stand for? Um, a small medium enterprise. Thank you. Um, so delegates at the fifth annual Appetite for Growth conference mm-hmm. were told that the local food and drink industry must capitalize on big data if the sector is to achieve its growth targets. Um, yeah, big data in farming. It's a, it's a, it's in in farming life, farming life news. Yeah, it doesn't really surprise me because uh, one of the big data cases I know about is actually I'm not sure it's in Switzerland or France or somewhere in the the big nature spaces in Europe. They are using they're tagging cows with uh, RFIDs to figure out how they're moving around, and apparently from the amount of time they move or stand still or something like that, they can define if that cow is in heat or not and if they should get uh, fertilized. And that way they were able to optimize their fertilization programs very largely and they get better cows now. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, there's a, there's a massive um, sort of market generally, uh, no yeah, pun intended, for, uh, for um, big data against agriculture. Yeah, everything from irrigation, mm-hmm. you know, the right kind of soils, the right kind of crops, you know, all of the you know, which crops to plant when, all driven by by big data, everything from from rainfall through to you know um, sensors in the in the ground and yeah, I other think 
meteorological comments. I think there's a big uh, similarity to the oil and gas industry, basically, because there's very large areas with a lot of sensors and uh, trying to capitalize as much as you can. Making every little piece of ground give you the most revenue, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go, farming life. Check it out. <laughs> so I haven't checked out many of the other uh, articles on there, I must admit. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't feel the farm in you waking up now? Mm, no, no, I don't. So that's it from me. Okay, well, all the links will be in the show notes, of course. So that's it for the big news. I do want to mention a listener question, though. As you mm-hmm. name it, audience question. And it's actually Sampath from Baltimore, which we talked about uh, last episode. He actually came back with a uh, follow-up on his question. And just uh, reading for myself here... Um, yeah, the thing else, he's now uh, kind of looking at Spark and maybe looking at Elasticsearch. And he sent us a link to the uh, little prototype he's running at the moment. And I guess it's on the internet, so we can mention it. It's on infoignite.com. Put it in the show notes too. And I actually noticed that he's using uh, Power BI. And he's also talking about using Azure Stream Analytics and Event Hubs. And since I'm from Microsoft, I kind of know a bit what he's doing at the moment. And I uh, kind of advised him last time to look at Elasticsearch or maybe Solar as a Lucene uh, alternatives uh, for, uh, for text search and all of that. But if he's working on Azure, Azure actually has something called Azure Search, which is also uh, based on Lucene. It's a bit more um, limited. It doesn't give you the full breadth of search syntax, if you like, that Elasticsearch and Solar will give you. But it might, uh, sample, it might give you a, an easier startup thing to do because you don't have to have a full VM running Elasticsearch or whatever you're using. It's a pay-as-you-go managed service. So take a look at it. Maybe that helps you. And also on a side note, considering that he's doing uh, big data Hadoop on Azure, um, just want to put out there that yesterday, when we record this yesterday, this Thursday, uh, and Microsoft re- released a new version of HD Insight. Uh, up till now, we had HD Insight 3.4 on there, which is based on Hadoop, Hortonworks Hadoop 2.4. Hortonworks released 2.5, I think, about three weeks ago now. Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Well, yesterday, the Hadoop, the HD Insight version based on 2.5 got live uh, on Azure. So now you can also enjoy the new 2.5 uh, HDP on uh, Azure, which includes Ranger, which has been sorely missed for a very long time. We finally have it in there. I'm very happy about that. It also has the Spark 2.0, and there's actually an LLAP preview. So if you want to do some quick hiving, that's also fun to try out there. So just wanted to put that out for some part if he's still listening to the podcast after last time, but I think he is. <laughs> Indeed. And actually, he, he also follows up with um, some additional uh, thoughts that we might uh, want to discuss in a future episode, and that's around organizations that offer encrypted database solutions uh, on Hadoop. Uh, he mentions two, CryptDB and ZeroDB. Um, interesting, neither of which I've done anything with previously. So, uh, But we're probably going to hold off on talking about that too much more today as we have uh, a, our continuing set of uh, podcasts around security. We're doing uh, role-based access control, access control and um, authentication no, authorization. Good. Lots of things beginning with A. We're doing lots <laughs> of things beginning with A today, and we're going to cover encryption and things in a future episode. So things beginning with A today, encryption tomorrow. Yeah, it's actually perfect timing from Sampath. 
he gives us some uh, I have never heard about these two solutions myself either so now I have a couple of weeks to dig into it and uh, hopefully include them in the next uh, part on security indeed and I also just noticed that we were also going to speak a little bit about the Strata Hadoop World Conference that's uh, taking place uh, right now, I guess, or the 30th, yeah, or did it finish yesterday? Yeah, winding up, I think. Winding yeah. up, yeah. So it's a big uh, uh, big data and Hadoop conference, uh, comparable to Hadoop Summit, I guess, but where Hadoop Summit is specifically about Hadoop, this one is also more about big data in general. It's a big and a big event. Uh, I've looked at the uh, schedule, the agenda, but there's no way we could go through that in any detail. But if any of you, of our listeners, have been to Strata Hadoop this week, let us know what you found, what was interesting, what not, and uh, maybe we'll talk about it in the next episode. Especially if you've been to um, Hadoop Summit as well, and you can compare and contrast the two, because I think that would be that would be kind of interesting. Yeah, I would actually personally find it interesting, because basically I always go to the Hadoop Summit and kind of decide, well, that's my one event for the year, which should be enough, but uh, maybe it's an idea to mix it up a bit. Maybe. But, yeah, but traditionally around these big uh, events, uh, the big uh, the big Hadoop distributors, uh, distributors, excuse me, uh, do some press releases to give some uh, marketing uh, stuff around it, of course. But for some reason, it's been very quiet. Actually, I've been looking at both Hortonworks and Cloudera's uh, news and blog pages, and the only thing I find, yeah, Hortonworks has a couple of stuff on Microsoft and the HD Insight version, and some, yeah, some interesting stuff. But Cloudera, which is pretty much a bigger partner of the Strata Hadoop uh, conference, yeah. if memory serves, uh, it actually says presented by O'Reilly and Cloudera. So let's say it's their uh, counterpart. But the only thing I can see is an announcement that they released uh, Cloudera Enterprise 582, which was on the 29th. And that's about it. The other, the mo- other most recent one is the release of Apache Kudu 1.0.0. And that's dated the 20th already. So a very slow news day, even though a big conference is taking place. Yeah, I was I was very surprised when I went hunting for news. I was expecting a slew of yeah. announcements from from Strata, but you know, as you say, there was like a, a flurry of stuff from from Hortonworks and like two or three from Cloudera, but nothing, yeah, nothing really, um, nothing that really sort of revolutionized things for me. No. Also, because it was nothing else, I started reading the Apache Kudo one the do release announcement. And mm-hmm. yeah, I was <laughs> a bit surprised, and I don't want to diss anybody here. I mean, everybody deserves respect, but it's a fairly long read, and two-thirds about what they put there is about things that don't work yet. Ouch. That's got to hurt. Limitations, limit, security limitations, API limitations. Now, it is a 1.0 release. So I guess you should could be excused, but still, 1.0 kind of means it should be a finished product, right? Let's talk release numbers for a little bit because I think, I mean, how long has how long has Storm been around? How many years has Storm been around? Longer than I have, I think. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that's just reached 1.0. How long has Kudu been around? Like eighteen months, not maybe. Even, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not even a year. You're probably right. Um, and already it's 1.0, and I don't know. I, I mean, I get it. Like, people are chasing numbers, and and that's that's fine. They're, they're perfectly entitled to do that. But for me, a 1.0 release, it signifies something, right? It should signify that this 
you know, not that it's finished because none of this software is ever finished, right? Mm-hmm. There's always more to do. There's always more to expand. There's yeah. always more to integrate with, so on and so forth. But a Wonder O release should be, you know, maybe basically feature complete. And maybe that's maybe that's me being just incredibly naive. Almost certainly it is. But uh, it doesn't, to me, Kudu doesn't feel like a Wonder O release. It, it mm-hmm. feels like a... 0.1 is probably a bit harsh, but it it, it doesn't feel wonder o to me. There's there's still too much of it that is either missing or incomplete or not quite working yet. Yeah, I mean, naive or not, I agree because my main issue with Kudu is I haven't seen it anywhere in use or even in let's try this out. And yeah. if you look at Storm, it had such a big adoption. I was used everywhere. If you talk about getting a feature complete, the only way you can actually figure out what features you need is by having the product used by people and people telling you, we want to do this, getting it doesn't work, and this is missing, exactly. blah, blah, blah. And that's how you build a product. Yeah. Since I've nor, neither when I was at Hortonworks nor when I'm at uh, Microsoft today, I haven't really seen Kudu in the wild anywhere except on events where Cloudera people talk about it. And I get it. It's a neat idea and they're working on it and I can see some usefulness out of it eventually. But yeah, having a 1.0 release already, I don't know. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe just us having our eye patches on. Totally possible. So another shout out to our audience. If you're with Cloudera or working with this uh, Kudu thing and you know more about it and we're totally missing the, the, the point here, let us know. We yeah. love to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you've had if you have experience of of running Kudu at any sort of mm-hmm. scale, you know, definitely yeah. give us a shout. To let us know what your experience is like because um, yeah, uh, definitely love to know. Yeah, because at the moment I can't even position it. Is is it a database? Is it a storage layer? It's a bit of everything and nothing of anything. So it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a mystery. Yeah, so, it's a mystery audience. wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a completely <laughs> separate storage silo. Um, so, audience, help us solve the enigma. Yeah. All right. Okay, we had the news, we had the audience questions. I think we did enough for the first part of the show. We're 40 minutes in if I look at the clock. So, let's go, to, go out into music. And when we get back, we will go to the main topic of the show about authorization and audit. So, now we're talking about all of the A's. Well, at least one of the A's. Possibly even two of the A's. Authorization and audit. So, when we talk about authorization, we're primarily talking about role-based access control. And there's a few things uh, to think about when you're talking about authorization from a big data perspective. Um, Authorization is particularly important. And what we mean by authorization is do I have the ability to access that data or perform an action on this piece of topology or query this data or read this data or change this data, whatever it might be? Um, As you store more and more information in a data lake, this becomes more and more significant problem. So getting this right, or at least having some kind of sensible approach to this from the very outset is pretty important. So when you're talking about uh, authorization, um, much of the sort of basic principles are actually reflected by 
the underlying organization of your data. So the underlying organization for much of your environment is likely to be HDFS for many of you. But you really want to think about how you slice and dice up your HDFS environment. Now, I tend to think about HDFS um, within the data lake as being within a couple of, um, I hesitate to call them silos, but maybe zones of data. And like the first zone is where you ingest the data. Now, this is likely to be in its in its very rawest form. It contains, you know, you know, credit card numbers. If you're dealing with that, it contains personally identifiable information, and it, you know, very much in its rawest forms, it can contain log files just brought in and dumped into the platform. Um, now, at that point. Almost no one should have access to the data in in that form in that area. The only people that are really going to have access to that are people responsible for, you know, ETL processing or ETL pipelining, people that are responsible for looking at that data and getting it to some sensible form where it can be consumed by the rest of your organization. Um, a second zone would be um, the sort of the the area that you would slightly open up the permissions you'd make the you know you'd optimize the data somewhat so you know if you've got a, a bunch of data that fits neatly into orc file or parquet then maybe you'd put them in those file formats um, maybe you would join up some data sources that you know are always used together so why not put them in the same tables um, and at this point you're not really necessarily doing a huge amount of, of processing on the data you're just optimizing it for querying and, and interrogating so maybe you're doing some very basic data quality but that's really about it and at this point you might have your etl people are definitely going to be looking at it here also you might expose data at this level to um you know data scientists and this layer may also be segregated so you may have some data that contains PII, some copies of the data that that PII has been hashed out in some way, or maybe you know, you have roles in place that restrict access to that. Um, and then you've got a third zone, and that third zone for me is largely the area of you know exposure to the rest of the business, the consumption layer, you know, or zone, call it whatever you want, but that layer is where. You know, there's far broader access um, to the larger BI community, for example, and you're still going to have access controls applied to that data, and you're probably still going to have either different variations of the data or data protected different ways, different groups. But that's the data that the wider business can go and discover, can go and play with, and go and consume. Does that kind of broadly line up with with your experiences, Jan? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, I'm letting you do the talking because you have a nice story around it. Um, just one thing I was thinking about. If you, people are asking about masking and anonymizing data, uh, what zone would you put that in? Zone 1, zone 2, not zone 3, I guess. Yeah, so I think, again, it, it sort of depends on how you're doing it. So for some, you know, some of the technologies that we're going to be talking about, you can actually um, dynamically mask data. So if you have permissions to see it, you can see it. If you don't have permissions, then you don't see it. Um, that's one method. If you don't have the ability to do that kind of dynamic masking, then you're largely um, relegated to having two copies of the data, 
one which includes the PII, one that excludes the PII, mm-hmm. um, or you've got third-party solutions that you can use, um, um, things like uh, uh, HP, well, what used to be called Voltage, there's now HP Secure Data, um, has the ability to dynamically um, sort of encrypt and decrypt fields on the fly based on policies that you can apply through that as well. And there are multiple different you know, tools from people like Data Guys and others um, to actually uh, consume those different layers. So I think some of it is in zone two and some of it's in zone three. And it really just depends on the kind of user community and the kind of trust really that you apply or the kind of regulatory pressure you are yeah. under to yeah. apply. To yeah, those sometimes users. trust isn't the issue, right? This is a regulation you have to follow. Yeah, very much so. And other question about zone three, uh, that's kind of the consumer ready layer, uh, if yeah. I understand correctly. Um, in my experience, that's sometimes uh, divided in a part that's still within the Hadoop environment and a part that's outside of the Hadoop environment. Just if you have massive consumption of a certain piece of da- uh, data, a certain, certain database, whatever, that does make sense to not have that in your Hadoop cluster anymore, but move it somewhere else in its own environment. Yeah, so that's true. and I, But I think some of that depends on the technologies that you're using. So if you've got... Um, you know, if you've got data that you're hitting through an API, like, you know, 20 times a second, you know, if that can go in HBase, then sure, that's fine. You can just keep that within, within your data lake environment. But yeah, if it's, if it's being hit by, um, you know, traditional, um, BI tools that are maybe, I don't know, cubing that data up or something like that, then maybe that gets pulled off onto, or maybe subsets of that data get pulled off. Cause this is the, this is the, uh, the ever ongoing debate, isn't it? You know, how, how much of the time do you pull data off for the environment and how much of the time do you query it on the platform? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gives the whole, the whole governance lineage, uh, idea comes exactly. important there, right? The more you spread out your data, how do you keep it? Uh, yeah, how do you keep it governed still that you know what's happening with it? Because the yeah, PII data, you still have to be careful with it. And even though you trust that other database, you don't know who's going to be using that other database, perhaps. So that's yeah. where the whole that thing comes into uh, the view. But uh, governance is for a next uh, episode, I guess. So let's go yeah. too deep into yeah. that. Now, apart from those things, I think uh, you're very eloquent, as always. Well, I do try. I do try. I mean, the other area to think about is um, so when you're applying these um, these policies, then you need to apply them against something. And almost all the tools and things that we're going to talk about a little bit later as we run through this, they all sync with uh, Active Directory or LDAP. Mm-hmm. Um, they all require Kerberos to be in place. Uh, refer to our previous episode if you don't know what Kerberos is. Um, well, if, I, if I may, the tool doesn't require Kerberos. It's more that the tool makes no sense if your cluster isn't Kerberized. Yeah, it's like having a, a huge safe door and no sides to your safe. Um, I was you know. I was thinking of having a, a huge safe made of glass. Yeah, that, well, I mean, you can get toughened glass, right? <laughs> Bulletproof glass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the the point still stands. Yeah, yeah. without without Kerberos, having all of this role based access control is is completely pointless. So please use them together. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking about you know applying these um, these role based access controls against things, um, I always recommend that organisations think about how they're applying these 
because really what you want to make sure is you're applying these against groups that make sense. So apply them against groups in LDAP or groups in your Active Directory environment. You know, don't try and uh, customize these roles down to specific users, mm -hmm. because whenever you do that, that means that you're starting to get into, um, you know, user servicing hell. And, you know, wherever possible, you just want users to be in the right groups and those groups to have the right access to the right data. And I get it. That's not always going to be an easy, perfect fit. But wherever possible, try and make use of your existing groups. You know, the tools that we're going to talk about sync with AD. They sync the users and groups. Um, most of them, you can actually filter them. So you, you don't need to pull down your entire AD tree. You can just pull down the relevant parts. Um, so make use of that rather than kind of just adding individual users whenever someone joins or whenever someone requests access. That's really not the way to go. Yeah, that's, that's just plain micromanaging, and that's always a bad idea. If your HR environment really wants that from you, you have to look at that before looking at the Hadoop cluster. Exactly. Make any sense. Okay, so when it comes to how you actually do this, um, there are a few different options. But when I say there are a few different options, there really aren't a few different options because the reality is uh, you're pretty much constrained to using whatever comes with your Hadoop distribution. Um, oh, so we're I don't know. It's all open source, so you can install it whatever you like, can't you? Yeah, but then you're left with picking up the pieces when it doesn't yeah. work as you expect. So yeah, The big problem here is that these security things have to be reaching in all the different components. They have to have a nice orchestration across the components, across the whole Hadoop environment. And if you put something in there yourself, which isn't in the distribution by default, you're making life just miserable for yourself, I guess. Yeah, very much so. Um, now, two out of the three that we're going to talk about actually follow a very a very sensible, very rational, and very similar premise, really. Yeah. And you could say, and we mentioned it earlier in the podcast, that, that maybe there's a certain sense of NIH syndrome going on here. Um, again, not invented here syndrome, which is where there is something that already exists, but you know, I'm, instead I'm going to go and start up a completely separate project that does the same thing. Um, As we said, it, it, then competition is good. Competition is good, but sometimes I just wish people would get along. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got you've got it's a double edged sword, right? You've either got competition, and then you've got you know com you've you've essentially divided your resource, or you've got collaboration, but then potentially um, it becomes too monolithic, inflexible. It's not moving fast stale. enough, stale. Maybe I don't know. I. I the thing is, what I look for is, is the overall architecture very, very similar? And if it is, then, like, really, why couldn't we all get along? And so let's just talk about a generic security uh, ecosystem or architecture, okay? So you're protecting uh, – you have a central environment which provides you – uh, somewhere that you set your policies, something that gives you your audit trail information. Um, and then you're going to be protecting a number of different services. And those services would be something like HDFS or Hive or Apache Solar or Impala, for example. And each of those services that you would protect would have a plugin that would plug into that service. That plugin would uh, would have a cached 
copy of the policy that applies to that service. And, you know, whenever I, so if I were to request um, a database query from a particular table, uh, the policy will be verified to see whether I should even have access to that database, should I have access to that table. If so, then I get the results back. And if not, then I get de denied at the plugin. And this is actually, you know, at a very high level, this is consistent across both Sentry and Ranger. Mm -hmm. um, they both follow this broadly similar pattern. So uh, Apache Ranger is a component that exists within the HDP Hortonworks data platform. And um, if you're using Cloudera, then you're using Apache Sentry. Um, they, they both follow that overall high-level architecture. Yeah, it's good to note that both are in the Apache ecosystem, where Apache Sentry got out of incubator earlier this year, and Ranger is yeah. still an incubator, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, now, where things get a little bit interesting, and part of this, I, I sort of question whether or not I was going to bring this up, but I think it's actually important because I think this f at least partially feeds into how you... Uh, how you decide to choose a Hadoop distribution if you're looking at um, security in particular. But one of the things that, that I always consider is how, how much of the ecosystem um, is covered by this kind of tooling. And one of the big kind of issues I have is that Sentry only covers a relatively small, well, Smaller. A smaller portion of the overall world. So if you're looking at Sentry, um, it has uh, plugins for Solar, for uh, Hive, for HDFS, and for Impala. Um, and that's it. Whereas yeah. if you're looking at Ranger, you get, um, you get Hive as well. Um, you get um, Solar as well. You get HDFS as well. Um, uh, what was the fourth one? Fourth one. Storm. Yeah, but no. So the other one that you don't get with uh, uh, Ranger, of course, is Impala. So you yeah. get the same three that you get with uh, that are all open source projects, uh, even though Impala is as well now, all common projects, should we say. Um, but then with Ranger, you also get um, HBase, you get Storm, um, you get Knox, you get Kafka. I'm expecting uh, Wi-Fi yeah, expecting NiFi soon. Um, I think it's early next year. It was. I think it was going to be the early, late this year. I think it's going to be early next year. And you also get Yarn for the capacity schedule queues as well. Mm. So, just Ranger to me is is a far. It's a far more complete solution for the overall ecosystem as you're applying it now. I mean, really, if, you, if you're if you already deploying Cloudera, you don't really have a, any choice. Sure, you could kind of try and hack things together. No. I, I really wouldn't recommend it. You know, if you're if you're looking to get support on that, uh, that'll be an interesting conversation. Please, and if you're uh, using do. Cloudera, you probably want Impala there, so. Exactly, exactly. And so it's kind of, you know, you'll, you'll use whichever tool uh, makes the most sense, you know, for your distribution. But if you haven't chosen a distribution yet, it's it's one of the things that I I see come up time and time again with people who um, it's one of the reasons that they decide to revisit some of their decisions because they they like this single pane of glass not just for setting policies but actually then for auditing as well. So being able to tie in 
you know, your auditing of, you know, what someone does in Hive with what someone else does in Storm and that sort of thing, you know, it makes it makes a difference. It makes a difference to how you apply a holistic view to that security. I think it's important to actually take a deeper look at why there's a, a gap there in supported uh, products between the two, uh, between Sentry and Ranger. And basically for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sentry is older. Sentry was around before HTTP even existed, I guess. Yeah. But Sentry at that time wasn't uh, in Apache. It was pretty much closed open source, if that's a term, uh, owned by Cloudera. And the reason that Ranger actually saw the light of day was because the open source community wanted something where they were free to add more components. And apparently yeah. that didn't work with uh, with the Cloudera Sentry um, solution. I wasn't there. I don't know. That's what I heard. But that's the reason that Ranger actually saw the light of day and got developed. And because of yeah, the whole inclusive nature of the Ranger product, it's more open to accept new components, to add new components. And future-proofing your investments, I would have to give the upper hand to Ranger myself too. I would trust Ranger to be much easier to incorporate newer products because, again, this whole Hadoop ecosystem is changing so rapidly. Uh, going with Sentry, which is already lacking today and very Cloudera-centric, sorry, but that's the way it is. Um, now, Sentry has become uh, open source. It's now an Apache product, so maybe they're going to change their ways and it will become a more of an equal playing field, which I would approve, which actually I would like, actually. Yeah, because there's still always the chance of just installing Apache products from Apache and not using distribution at all. And in that case, you would you should have open choice between Sentry and Ranger to choose whatever flavor you like. But yeah, today with the difference in supported uh, ecosystem, uh, yeah, it's a tough choice to choose for Sentry. Yeah, definitely. Um, so something else that I think is. It's also worth mentioning, and again, this 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 feels like we're we're kind of uh, we're hating, and I, I I can only apologize for that. That's not the intended uh, nature of this. It's trying to give you a, a full picture of what the security solutions look like. Ranger, Ranger, I think has come a long way. I, I was you know, dealing with Ranger back when it was XA Secure. Um, it very briefly was called something else, uh, and then it became Ranger. Um, and it's it's come a long way, but it's always kept a very it's always been very good from a web front end feel. It now has an embedded solar instance for um, for, for bouncing your way through the logs and filtering stuff out and querying it. Um, if you're looking at Ranger, yeah, it does generate audit log information, um, and you can customize the log4j format that uh, you want it logged out as. That's you know that that's really to me that's not current state. You're talking Ranger or Sentry here? Sorry, I'm talking Sentry okay. here. Sentry here so. is now kind of here's your log4j format. Um, here's the standard formats that it will send out. That's honestly that's not good enough in my opinion. Well, they do have integration in Cloudera Navigator, which gives you a little bit of I guess user friendliness. But then again, Navigator yeah. is a paid for product, which is hard to compare with an open source environment. And truth be said, I personally like the Ranger UI better myself. Yeah. Okay, so that's the kind of um, role-based access control as mm. handled by the, the two major players in the ecosystem. Yep. And my sincere hope that uh, the competition between Cloudera and Hortonworks will make Sentry a better product in the future. Yeah, and I think actually you can see that happening. If you look yep. at uh, Sentry, I think it was about, 
I first looked at it about 18 months ago and it was like very, very static, very, very stale. And then about six months ago, there seemed to be, in fact, might not even, might have been a little bit longer than that. So maybe six to eight months ago, there seemed to be a significant push into mm-hmm. Sentry. So I think that is happening. I think Sentry <laughs> has picked up in adoption, has picked up in interest, and has picked up in contribution. So I agree. I fully hope that uh, that that's the case. Yeah, it does feel like Cloudera has caught the open source bug and is now serious about it. And hey, if even Microsoft can say they love Linux and open source and they're apparently the biggest contributor, well, whatever. Cloudera should be able to do this too, right? Indeed. Absolutely. Now, yeah. there is a third party <laughs> in this whole um, three-tier Hadoop distribution And yeah, we race. both flabbergasted what, what we found. Yeah, we were. And you won't believe what happened next is the clickbait. <laughs> um, tune in again next time. <laughs> yeah, tune in again next week. No, no, sorry. We won't, we won't make hang around for this. Um, so I... So MapR is obviously the the third player yeah. in the market. Um, we went to the MapR. We both were individually went to the MapR website. Um, and uh, when you look at MapR and security, uh, I was I was honestly um, surprised. I was yeah. genuinely surprised because, as you may expect from a from the MapR perspective, um, they're all about the file system. So you can set up, uh, you know, access control lists against the volumes in the cluster, against the queues, the MapReduce job queues. Um, you can set uh, what they call access control expressions uh, to control user permissions for directories and files and MapRDB tables. Um, and, you know, really that's about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple of references to their, what is it, converged data platform that will do the magic, whatever it is you need, but very little details. And having a scope that's so based on the file system, I mean... What's the rest? Where's everything else? If you look at Storm, Storm has nothing to do with files, but if you look at Ranger, you have a a Ranger plugin for Storm that uh, can give access to authorization to starter topology, stopper topology, pause topology, and maybe you say, well, we don't need that, but it's good, it's there, it's in the same interface, and why wouldn't you? Their approach, they're totally locked in. (laughs) And uh, to be honest, I haven't looked at MapR that often because, well, Hortonworks and Cloudera are the big ones out there. Those are the ones you see most, and MapR has its own little niche there, and they're doing good work, I guess. My customers are using it and seem to enjoy it. But I was totally surprised at the, the, the lack of, yeah, advanced security feel like they have because on the governance part, the auditing is very meager as well. Yeah. They got some encryption that's just a standard, uh, yeah, over the wire, the, the procedure called encryption and data at rest, yep. which is the file system, of course. Yep. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, um, if you're using that power and you have managed to apply more complex security, again, let us know. Uh, let us know what that experience is like, because from, from what we could dig into, um, it did not look very impressive. And maybe mm. we've missed something. I I hope so, because otherwise, yikes. Yeah, yeah. maybe we did miss something, because from the three, MapR, I think, is the least open-source-centric one, and where Cloudera and Hortonworks put all of their pretty good, excellent documentation online and easy to search and find and use, 
maybe map are still in the uh, mindset of having their own books closed for the public and if you don't have the product then you don't get the information possible don't see why they would do it but yeah um so actually you did bring up an interesting thing as as we were running through that which is no i i swear i heard it um which is when we're talking about role-based access control um don't limit yourself to just thinking that it's about the data um you brought up something around um storm Mm -hmm. and it's it's true you can apply policies against storm but policies that you apply against storm aren't specifically around the data they're around the storm topologies. So things like, can I submit a new topology? Can I start or stop a topology? You know, so you can get very granular across these kind of things as well. So you can give people things like read only access to certain information. The same is true of Kafka. You know, do you want to allow someone to create a new topic or, Mm -hmm. or just, or just submit stuff to topics? So, Again, it, it's not just about the. It's not just about pl- applying permissions to data. It's about applying applying permissions consistently across your whole ecosystem of tools. And it's really really important to to make sure that's really clear. Yeah, and of course, Atlas is going to give you the next step in that. But we're keeping Atlas for the next episode, I guess, because we're really running yeah. out of time. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So um, we will definitely talk about that. The integration between. Uh, governance and security, um, so tag-based security, um, I think is going to be uh, definitely a topic for another day. But hopefully, um, you've enjoyed this uh, quick rundown of uh, authorization and audit. Anything final you want to say around audit? Uh, no, just that it's a very lean playing field with just Sentinel Ranger out there, and both of them should be able to hit each other for the title every half year. Definitely. Competition is good. You heard it here. Probably not first, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, that's about all we have time for today. Hope you enjoyed this serving of Bite Size Big Data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode about who knows. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions, and please give us a five-star review on iTunes really helps new users to discover this podcast, even though Jan is right, I don't really like iTunes. Um, but it also helps us broaden our audience, and that's always a good thing. More people listening to The Roaring Elephant equals double good. If you don't think we deserve the full five stars, well, that's okay. But in that case, give us some feedback on the feedback form on our website, or just drop us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with your thoughts, comments, criticisms, questions, and any other feedback. My name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. See you then.